John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. Jesus predicts his death. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship in the the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, thank you, Francis, for reading today's passage. Um, I should have said thank you to Katie as well earlier for for that fantastic drawing she did. I didn't get a chance, but I'll catch up with her perhaps after the service. Well, it's a difficult reading, isn't it, today, actually? And uh, so it's a good place to start and as we ask God to help us to think through this passage together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for this bright, sunny morning, and we thank you for this word that you have given to us today. Father, we come before you with the same request that those Greeks had at the start of today's reading. 
that we would like to see Jesus. So help us this morning to indeed see and learn more about Jesus. Amen. I wonder, what would you say is the greatest achievement in your life? And that's a question that sometimes gets asked in job interviews or on job application forms. I don't know how you would answer that. Perhaps it's the time when you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro or raised six children. Or perhaps, more like me, it was winning the egg and spoon race when you were at primary school. Well, I wonder how Jesus would answer that question. We've already seen that through Jesus' ministry, he had turned water into wine. He'd fed a crowd of over 5,000 with a boy's lunchbox. He'd opened the eyes of the blind and healed the sick. He walked on water and he even raised Lazarus from the grave. Surely that's a great list of achievements in which Jesus could say he accomplished in his life. And we know too that Jesus was gaining popularity. We told that in just the verse before today's reading, in verse 19. It says, the Pharisees said to one another, look how the whole world has gone after him. And there's evidence of this straight away in verse 20. So do uh, keep your Bibles open if you've got them open. Uh, you see this straight away in verse 20, where there were some Greek tourists, weren't they? They were in town. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they make a request to see Jesus. Perhaps they had heard the many stories about him. And they were curious, wanting to make use of their time in Jerusalem to find out more. Now, this wasn't simply a request to see him. You know, not just to simply shake his hand and take a selfie next to him to show the folks back home in Greece. But rather, they wanted an audience with Jesus, an encounter to get to know him. And I wonder, what about us this morning? Are we curious to know more about Jesus, to get to know him? Well, Jesus, in his response to their request, you see that in verse 23, it's rather an odd answer, which perhaps they were not expecting. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It seems rather odd, doesn't it, at first? It almost appears if Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Yet Jesus is answering them. You could say he's just redirecting their view. Perhaps the Greeks were hoping to see Jesus perform another miracle. But what Jesus says is, if you really want to see me, then you need to look somewhere different. Go and look at my hour of glory. What is this hour of glory that Jesus is talking about? And just to clarify, saying hour in Greek simply means a specified time, not literally 60 minutes. But it's really important we understand this as it's really the key to understanding this whole passage. You see, throughout John's Gospel, there's this constant uh, ticking, isn't there? There's this theme of not yet, not yet, not yet, which creates kind of a building sense of anticipation. You may recall back in chapter 2, 
In John's Gospel at the wedding at Cana, Jesus tells his mother that his hour had not yet come. And again in chapter 7, Jesus tells his disciples at the Feast of Tabernacles that the right time for me has not yet come. And again later in that same chapter when the Jewish authorities try to arrest Jesus, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But it's now here, isn't it, that Jesus finally announces that the hour has come. So you can see this is a significant moment in John's Gospel. What is so significant about this hour? Well, we remember just before this passage, we hear about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It was the time when the people had hopes that he was going to perhaps seize power and establish his rule, overthrowing the Roman occupation. Of course, Jesus has a bigger enemy to overcome than Rome. And rather than pointing at any coronation, it's his death, his crucifixion, which he points to, and which will take place just one week after. It's a shocking response, isn't it? He knows he would be beaten, mocked, hung naked on a wooden cross. What can be glorious about that? It's horrendous, shameful, humiliating punishment. The cross looks like the very opposite of glory. It looks like the end. But Jesus is clear that his death is his greatest achievement. This is his moment of glory that he came for. And it is on the cross when we see Jesus at his most glorious. Imagine for a moment you're walking into a cafe and in one corner you see the footballer, Ronaldo, sipping his cappuccino. Or if football's not your thing, imagine seeing someone like Beyonce. You know that Tom's favourite singer, I think, isn't it? You know, she's reading the Daily Telegraph and uh, imagine going up to them and uh, even sitting down with them, having an enjoyable chat with them. And you could say, well, it's a, you know, that was a wonderful moment, meeting them in the cafe, talking to them. But really, it's not until you see Ronaldo playing football, scoring goals, or seeing Beyonce on stage singing that you could say that you've seen them in their full glory, is it? It's a silly illustration, I know, but hopefully you grasp the point that unless we see Jesus on the cross, we will never understand Jesus' full glory. Indeed, that's often the danger, isn't it? That many people today only see Jesus as the meek and mild baby who comes out at Christmas time. Or maybe the good moral Jesus who brings about social justice, or the dangerous radical Jesus, or the Jesus who is nice to hear about at weddings and funerals, or some sort of comfort blanket. But in doing so, we completely miss out who the real Jesus is and what he has accomplished. So then, if you want to see Jesus this morning, go and look at the hour of his glory. Look at the cross, where we will see all his glory on display. I often, 
was preparing this, I wasn't thinking about that word glory, because we often use it a lot, don't we, in, uh, uh, in churches. And, and I found it helpful when someone was saying it's a bit like the word colour, that it's a word to describe a spectrum of different shades. I don't know uh, if you've ever had to choose a colour for decorating. You know, you get, you know, you get these sample slides and things, don't you? You know, if you want white, it's not just white. There's apple white, James white, Wimborne white, schoolhouse white, off-white, lime white, new white, old white, all white, strong white, and of course, there's brilliant white. You know, the fact is, we see different shades of God's glory, don't we, throughout the gospel. But it's at the cross where we see all his glory displayed at the one time. Why then is it that the cross, something so gory, is at the time so glorious? Why, what did Jesus' death actually achieve? That's a big question to fully answer this morning, but there's three clear things that Jesus says himself just a bit further in today's text. Firstly, the cross is the time for the judgment of the world. Do you see that in verse 31? Now is the time for judgment on this world. It's ironic, isn't it, that when the world judged Jesus on the cross, it was actually judged itself. When Jesus comes to the world and the world rejects him, it reveals what's wrong with the world. It actually reveals what we're like. Just as the cross reveals all of God's glory, it is also at the cross where all of our wickedness is seen. It's where we killed our creator. The worst about us is revealed. Note too that this judgment has already begun. The hour of Jesus' death is when it begun. Judgment begins now, not later. The cross is where the sin of man and the wrath of God was laid on Jesus. And it's a judgment on those who reject him. But secondly, we see at the cross is also where Jesus achieves his greatest victory. Look at verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The power of the devil has been destroyed. Whilst the devil is still at work in the world, he has already been toppled from power and dethroned. And again, note the timing now. It's at the cross where the devil's greatest weapon was destroyed, not at some point in the future. It means we are freed from Satan's grip. Remember that words of the hymn, Before the throne of God above, that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, at wood I look and see him there, who made an end for all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is set free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Satan's power over us through sin and death is broken. And there's the third thing Jesus says here. 
and that Jesus' death draws the whole world, people of all nationalities, to his kingdom. See that in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, whilst the cross is horrendous, it's also beautiful, for it is there we see the true depths of God's love and goodness. That in despite of our rebellion, he was willing to die for you and me. A God who reaches out to the world to bring us back to himself. You see, life with God can only come through the death of Jesus. This is what Jesus' mission was all about. The gospel isn't that Jesus' great teaching saves us nor is his good moral example, or by trying to do the best we can. What saves us is the death of Jesus. If you look back at verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, if I, uh, I was to show you one of these tomato seeds, well, I don't think they're tomatoes, but you can see what it is, can't you? Probably if you had binoculars or something. But can you really see it? You see, in order to see it, you have to plant it into the soil. And eventually, it will grow into a plant. And there's some I prepared earlier, two leaves. And eventually you'll produce tomatoes. And hopefully not just one tomato, but several tomatoes. You see, unless I plant that seed in the ground, I wouldn't be able to get any fruit. And I wouldn't be able to get any further seed to produce even more fruit. See, that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. That the world would not see the full outcome of his work and his life until he went to the cross. And God's plan isn't just for one seed. His plan is for a multitude that includes you and me. But here's another amazing thing in this passage. You see, Jesus doesn't just display his own glory, but he invites us into it. You see, this truth that he explains about himself becomes truth about us. Do you see that in verse 25? Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Those are strong words, quite tough words. But Jesus' point was, if you are living only for yourself, for happiness in this life, for success, for wealth, you will end up empty in the end. We need to hate our sinful life. I wonder this morning, what do you need to bury to die so that you might bear fruit for God? Is it our pride 
Are we willing to bury it and humble ourselves and submit to God? Is it our preferences? Are we willing to lay them down, to do it God's way and build up people? Is it our judgment? Are we willing to bury that and allow God to be the judge? Whatever it is, our dreams, our possessions, our money, our aspirations, our relationships, are we willing to put them all in the ground to let them die and ask God to grow? Of course, let's be clear, this isn't easy, is it? We have a tendency to hold on. We don't want to let them fall into the ground. But again, think about that seed. It would be crazy, wouldn't it, if I kept this, you know, kept this seed in this packet and may keep them nice and clean, but I wouldn't get any tomatoes. It would make me a rubbish gardener. We need to let the seed go into the ground. Let it die there and watch what God does as a result. Martin Luther wrote, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. It's not easy. Someone said, getting rid of the self-life is like peeling an onion layer upon layer. And it's a tearful process, like when peeling an onion too. There's no shortcuts, there's no quick fixes. And it's comforting, isn't it, that Jesus himself found it difficult to do what God was asking him to do. Notice that in verse 27. Father, and sorry, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a real demonstration, isn't it, of Jesus' humanity here. It's as if the significance of his death suddenly dawns on him. The moment when it becomes real. I find it really encouraging, isn't it? This reminder that it's not a sin to struggle. In fact, true obedience is to struggle, but to follow Jesus anyway. Also note how Jesus, what Jesus does when he's troubled. He prays, he talks to his father and draws strength. That's a lesson for us to follow and do the same when we struggle. Well then, how does Jesus end his speech, which is his last public address before he is arrested? It's incredible to think that if those Greek tourists were around for another week, they could well see him on the cross. Well, Jesus gives the crowd, which includes us, a choice. Will you walk in the light or darkness? Look at verse 35 again. You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk whilst you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Jesus has come, hasn't he, and revealed the way to walk. He is the light in the darkness. While you still have an opportunity, come to the light of Christ. Come to the cross. It's Jesus' final call for belief. And the light will not always be available. There is a limited time in which each of us has an opportunity to respond to Jesus.
How we respond to that light determines where we will be for eternity. If you want to walk with certainty, act at once. Look to the cross. Cling to the old rugged cross as the hymn says. Cherish it. Look to Jesus who died to give you life. Who died to bring glory to God. Who died to defeat evil. And he draws all people to himself. The note at the end of this passage, when Jesus had finished speaking, notice that Jesus left and hid himself from them. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? If you turn away from him today, then there's a, there's a terrible risk that that light will never come again. Put your trust in Jesus while you'll still see him so that we can all be united together in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you gave up your riches, your glory, your throne, and was willing to go to the cross to die so that we could live and be reconciled back to you. We thank you that death has been defeated, evil has been defeated. And may we cling thee to the old rugged cross and pray that you help us to put to death those things in our lives which separate us from you. And help us to walk in your light, so we will not stumble. These things we pray and ask for in Jesus' name. Amen.